Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The Tanner Talks from the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences and the USU English Department are presenting an evening with Cheryl Strayed at the Performance Hall on the USU campus. That's on Thursday, April 6th, 7 p.m. The event is free and open to the public, but tickets are required, and those tickets will be made available beginning at 11 a.m. today. Our guest for the hour is Cheryl Strait, author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, Wild, New York Times bestsellers Tiny Beautiful Things and Brave Enough, and the novel Torch. The Oscar-nominated movie adaptation of Wild stars Reese Witherspoon as Cheryl and Laura Dern as Cheryl's mother, Bobby. The uh, screenplay is by Nick Hornby. Strait's essays have been published in Best American Essays, New York uh, Times, Washington Post Magazine, Salon, Tin House, and other uh, places. And she's co-host along with Steve Almond of Dear Sugar Radio, which originated with her popular Dear Sugar Advice column on the Rumpus. Cheryl Strait holds an MFA in fiction writing from Syracuse University, a bachelor's degree from University of Minnesota. She lives in Portland, Oregon, and joins us uh, on the phone. Uh, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. It's great to be here. Great to uh, great to have you with us. The uh, We've had inquiries this morning about those tickets. We'll alert people that you can't get them until 11 a.m., so a lot of buzz about your visit. Looking forward to having you uh, at uh, at Utah State. Well, I'm flattered, and I was surprised to hear today is the big day that those tickets become available. Yeah. I hope a lot of your listeners will, will get them. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing it'll be uh, sold out, as it were. Um, I'd like to uh, to start uh, by, uh, I was watching a, a video you were talking about, uh, Deer Sugar. Yes. And I was interested to learn that you you come from a very rural upbringing. That resonated with me. I uh, have a rural upbringing as well. Um, yours more than mine, I think. You you say the, the biggest town nearby was 400 people? That's right. So I grew up 20 miles away from that town of 400 people. So I really uh, had an extremely rural experience to the point that we didn't even have indoor plumbing when I was uh, living at home. My parents finally got, my mother and my stepfather got an indoor toilet when I was, uh, you know, like a, a freshman or sophomore in college. Well, it takes me back to my, uh, my mother grew up in a, in a farm town in western Utah, and um next door to them they had a three-seater outhouse that that, that, that was the big <laughs> that was the big news the three-seater so so that yeah well that we was, just had a one-seater but oh, you know and I, so it was mcgregor minnesota was the nearest town I, I grew up in rural aiken county minnesota and i um you know i i feel so fortunate that i had that experience because i definitely felt you know when i was uh, a teenager especially living in that kind of situation out in the woods, far from people, didn't have a phone. You know, I think about now my own kids who have cell phones and we all are so connected, right? I I resented uh, being out in the woods like that when I was a teenager. And my mother would always say, this is character building. Someday you're going to thank me for this. (laughs) And she was right. I I feel grateful that I had that kind of experience as, as, you know, I was developing as an adolescent. Mm -hmm. So looking back, I guess you could admit to your mother that this was character building. Totally. You know, it's inevitably character building when you have to wash your hair in a a pot of water heated up on your wood stove. Yeah, Mm, for sure. Now, you you, uh, worked for the the paper, Aiken County News? Yes. You know, so that's right. That was was my first job, really, as a writer. I had gone off to college, and I I just want to back up and say, you know, I I grew up uh, working class and, and actually quite poor for most of my childhood, and for me to go to college was uh, a big dream and a, and a big adventure. I paid for my college myself. And so I was always uh, working jobs to support that. And when I was a freshman in college, I learned that my hometown county newspaper, the Aiken Independent Age, which is just published to this day still once a week, every Wednesday, um, I heard that their longtime reporter was leaving. And I just really wanted that job. And I knew it wasn't a job I could keep indefinitely, but you know, I said, hey, hire me for the summer. I know everyone in the county. I know this this place, and you you know you can look for another more permanent reporter while I do the job during the summer. And and indeed, they hired me. It was a minimum wage, forty uh, hour a week job, and I took it and, and and loved it. So you say you would drive around and just uh, just look for stories. Yes, but you know, the, I have to tell you the most exciting thing that happened. Um, and this is just absolutely a crazy but true story, is the very first day um, that I was on the job as the reporter for the Aiken County Independent Age. And I can't emphasize enough how little happens in the county where I grew up. (laughs) 
Um, but on that very first day, uh, the McGregor State Bank was robbed at gunpoint, and um, I had been on the job maybe 15 minutes. And so this was the first story that I got to cover was this, this thing, this, the, the, the robber um, got away with a big sack of money. And uh, there's a longer story to that. I'm writing about it in my next book. But um, it was quite a, quite a way to begin um, that summer. But, yes, the rest of the summer I just had to drive around and look for a story. What, what is your next book? My next book is a memoir, and it's, you know, I, I sort of hate to talk about the book I'm writing because it always ends up being something different by the time it's done. But I can say it's a lot of stories about uh, the different places and landscapes that influenced me, and, and certainly those um, early days in Aiken County, Minnesota, were deeply influential. Mm. And so I'm, I'm writing about uh, that, that summer as a reporter and, and many other things. Interesting. We'll look forward to, to that. Uh, you this re- you. this resonated with me. The, the the you know you go around you just get stories. For example, a, a lady who thirty years earlier had been to Spain. Yeah, right. Well, I mean that's one of the funniest things. Of course, um, I just earlier said to you like, oh, nothing happens in in that county. But of course, that's not true. And one of the most important lessons I know as a writer and a human, but particularly as a writer, is that we all have a story. And I, I really believe um, that even when we think nothing's happening, there's always something going on. And so when I was that, you know, have, had that first job as, as a writer, I would look deeper, you know, beneath the surface. And somebody who seemed ordinary would have a really interesting story to tell. And those are the stories I told uh, in the newspaper that summer. And those are also the stories that I have mined for all of these years of my writing career. And you say the ordinary is extraordinary. And sometimes, you know, we look down on, on the, you know, the small town. I, I remember my hometown newspaper, the Bernal Express, you'd see, you don't see this as much now, but back when I was growing up, it was, you know, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so visited so-and-so. That, that'd be in the paper. Uh, a, yeah. Vi- a visit. You well, know? you know, I, I think that my, I think the Aiken Independent Age still has that, those columns. Um, you know, obviously in a big rural county, you have many different communities, and we need to stay connected. And yeah, it would be Mr. and Mrs. Fred, whatever, went to have tea at so-and-so's house. And, you know, this was news, and people really uh, kept track of it. Hmm. What do you think it is? Your mother said it would build character living kind of in, in um, lesser circumstances than some other people, but what do you think it is about a rural place that maybe shaped your character, shapes character of a person who lives, grows up there? Well, I think that any time things are difficult, you learn from them. I think about the most meaningful experiences of my life were all difficult in, in ways, you know, whether it be parenting my children or, or writing books or hiking the Pacific Crest Trail or, or growing up, uh, you know, without electricity, running water and indoor plumbing. You know, you, you are challenged and it's hard to meet that challenge and you learn something from it about your own strength and your own character. And I would say particularly when it came to a rural environment, you know, one of the things that I remember feeling very definitely once, once I grew up and lived in a city and could look back on my childhood is that, you know, growing up in the country or in a rural uh, place, um, as we say, uh, it, it, you never think that you're the center of anything. You know, you always are aware that um, you're on the sidelines and that, that, you know, the real action is elsewhere. I remember thinking when I was a young girl wanting to be a writer, thinking, well, I had to go live in New York City or some someplace uh, cosmopolitan, you know, where more was happening before I had any stories to tell. And I was wrong about that. Uh, my first um, book, my first novel is called Torch, and it's set in a fictionalized version of Aiken County. It's, it's I call it Coltrack County. And, but it's, you know, people who live there recognize uh, the place. It's, it's very much like the place I grew up. And I, I very, I, I, by the time I wrote that book, I knew that actually I didn't need to go anywhere to find story, that my life was rich with story and that all of our lives are. We just have to pay attention. You've, you've talked about, uh, you've been asked this a lot, I'm sure, about memoir, and you, you say that memoir gets a bad rap. It, 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 we tend to think of memoir sometimes, I guess, bad memoirs as being completely narcissistic, you know, total navel-gazing and, and not universal. You say, no, the, the opposite is true in a good memoir. Absolutely, and I, I do think that memoir is a profoundly misunderstood form, uh, in part for good reason and in part we, because we just haven't quite paid attention 
So, you know, let me back up and say, uh, you know, the funny thing is I, the, my first two books were Torch, which is a novel, and Wild, which is a memoir. And my experience with each book, when, when Torch came out, uh, people were always asking me, what, what are the true parts? You know, what are the true parts of this, of this novel? And when Wild came out, people would say, well, what parts did you make up? And um, there was this funny kind of suspicion about memoir. And I think that, that um, you know, so often people think, when they hear that somebody's written a memoir, well, you must think you're so interesting. Why are you so interesting? And, you know, my answer to that is I think that we're all interesting. I said earlier, we all, you know, I think we all have lives worthy of literature. And what the art of memoir is doing is simply, instead of inventing a fictional character uh, through which we hope to reveal some human truths, as you do in a novel, you're using the self uh, as that conduit. And it's, the, the premise isn't, you have to hear this story because I had a more interesting life than you or a bigger loss than you. It's actually, let me mine this, this deep experience that I know because it was mine in, while seeking to illuminate stories that impact us all. And of course, this has happened to me over and over again in my conversations with people who have read Wild or, or my essays, which are, you know, my nonfiction essays. Uh, you know, I write deeply about things like the death of my mother and of course, you know, that was a great loss for me, and I don't expect uh, anyone to think that that's a bigger loss than they've had in their own life, you know. But what I lead them to is through telling the story of my loss, of course, it illuminates their own. So many people have said to me, when you wrote about your mother dying young, you wrote about my sorrow or you wrote about my experience too. And it's, it seems to be about community as well. You you write that, or uh, you've said that... Uh, Many readers uh, tell you, uh, I read Wild or whatever it might be, and, and then I didn't feel so alone. And I think it goes the other way yeah. as well for you. Yeah. I mean, that that was the most beautiful. I mean, it, it really is the most beautiful part of being a writer because we think of a writer as being somebody who sits alone in a room. Right now I'm in my, my little office, and in order for me to create the work, I have to be deeply alone. But then, of course, when it goes into the world, first of all, I think, the work belongs to the reader. You know, I, I make it, and then the readers make meaning of it. And I, I find that uh, that connection that can happen between a writer and a group of readers is pretty profound. And especially in this, you know, I was mentioning my mother's death, you know, my grief. I remember feeling so alone. Uh, when my mom died, so my mother was 45 years old when she died pretty suddenly of cancer. She only knew she had cancer for seven weeks. And I was a senior in college. I was 22. She was also a senior in college. Those of you who have read Wild, those of your listeners who have read Wild know that we began college together. And, um, you know, it was devastating. It was absolutely devastating. And, and I felt a lot of different things. But one of the things I felt is I didn't know anyone else who had lost their mother. I, I didn't really, most of my peers and friends had never suffered a big loss. You know, they might have had an older family member die, which of course is sad, but it was not, you know, it was that that person died when they were meant to die, right, when they were older. And so I felt so alone. And it's been really interesting to me to have the experience I've had with my books where people do feel connected to me and they come to me and say, I feel exactly like you feel or exactly like you felt. And I realized that through my writing in so many ways, I brought that community of people, of, of people who've had experiences like my own. I've brought them to me. I've brought them into my life. And it feels like a, a gift. Let's take a break. When we come back, back more with Cheryl Strayed, author, of course, of Wild and the novel Torch, uh, Tiny Beautiful Things, Brave Enough. Um, and uh, Cheryl Strayed is coming to uh, Utah State University, coming to Logan uh, it's uh, presented, this appearance is presented by Tenor Talks from uh, USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences and the USU English Department. It's called An Evening with Cheryl Strait, and uh, the tickets are, are uh, required, but they are free. Uh, they're not available till 11 a.m., so uh, get, get uh, right in there at 11. Um, they're 11 a.m. today, and that event is on Thursday, April 6th. We're talking with Cheryl Strade. We'll open up the phone lines and email uh, after this break. Uh, you can uh, contact us with your question or comment for Cheryl Strade at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Or you can uh, also reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. More following this break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. 
It's costly for a company not to have a constancy of purpose. I'm guilty of that most Saturday nights when we get in the car and go to dinner. We head towards one restaurant, change our minds, head towards another, and perhaps even another. Annoying, yeah, but costly, not very. But a company without constancy of purpose is in a death spiral. They invest in personnel and equipment to do one job, then head in another direction. They do a costly retool, then try again. If the pattern continues, the company will eventually run out of resources, time, and business. Excellent companies have a constancy of purpose. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The Tanner Talks from the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences and the USU English Department are presenting an evening with Cheryl Strade. That's at the Performance Hall on the USU campus Thursday, April 6th. At 7 p.m., the event is free and open to the public, but tickets are required, and tickets will be available beginning at 11 a.m. today. So uh, not yet, but uh, get ready to get those tickets. My guest for the hour today is Cheryl Strait. She's author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, Wild, New York Times bestsellers, Tiny Beautiful Things and Brave Enough, and the novel Torch. She is co-host along with Steve Allman of Dear Sugar Radio, which originated with her popular Dear Sugar advice column on the rumpus and uh, she is joining us by telephone for the hour you can join this conversation hope you will if you have a question or comment at 800-826-1495 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com upraxcess at uh, gmail.com i want to get into talking a little bit about uh, wild and the, there i'm guessing there will be a, maybe a few people in the audience here that have not read wild um I want to start with your with your mother, uh, Cheryl Strayed. Um, you say she dated men with names like Killer and Doobie and Motorcycle Dan. Um, and uh, this this especially uh, touched me. Her love was full-throated and all-encompassing and un- unadorned. Every day she blew through her entire reserve. She, she sounds extraordinary. She was. She was a, an extraordinary, ordinary woman. Uh she was the kind of mother that I that we all hope everyone has, right? That that mother who loves her children with cheer and optimism and good humor, even in difficult times. As I said, you know, I, I did grow up poor, and especially the poorest years were during those years um, between my mother's two marriages when she was a single mom with three kids. She married my biological father young, you know, when she was like 19, and um, they had a very difficult relationship. He was violent and abusive, and and she um, divorced him, and there she was with these three kids. And, you know, so things were often hard, but, of course, my memory, you know, when I think about my childhood, what I do most remember is just the way that my mother made everything good and made everything fun. She was um, such a great mom, and my siblings and I still, even though she died, as I said earlier, she died when she was 45, all three of us were devastated by that loss. I do see now um, very deeply the ways that those that that, uh, that that love that she gave us in the years that we had her has really carried us uh, forward into our lives in really important ways. Mm. Um, you know, I think so often we think about um, the things we need to give children. Of course, our our you know resources and 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 um, it, it's nice to have more financial comfort than say I had as a kid. But I think if you don't have that most essential thing, uh, at least one parent, ideally two, but at least one parent who truly loves you, um, you, you don't have much. You say you folded your life down to care for her. It was fast, right? It was seven weeks or something. Yeah, seven weeks. Uh, yeah, that... I was a senior in college uh, when my mom got sick. We both, what happened is, um, you know, because I did grow up the way I did, it wasn't like when I was in high school, everyone was saying, well, what about college? And, you know, do, do we, nobody took me on college tours or any such thing. And I didn't really know the process. Uh, so I applied to just one school. I was living in northern Minnesota, and um, I couldn't imagine leaving the state, but I applied to um, this small school called the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. And when I, you know, I didn't realize you were really meant to apply to more than one college or things like that, but I, they luckily let me in. And when they admitted me, they said in their letter, 
if you go to college here, your parents can go for free. And my mother at that time was 40, and she had always wanted to have a college education but never had the luxury of that because she had, you know, us, my, my brother and sister and I. And she said to me, oh, I have always wanted to go to school. And I thought, there's absolutely no way you're going with me <laughs> because I was <laughs> 17 and, of course, did not want to take my mom to college. Um, and, and But I, what ended up happening is, I realized I didn't want to stand in the way of that opportunity for my mom. And so the college was about three hours away from where I grew up in northern Minnesota. And, and my mother registered for a full load. She went to co- we went to college together that same that first year. I lived in the, on campus in the dorms. She, she drove back and forth. And we both really, the world opened up before us. And, you know, we ended up transferring colleges. I, it was too expensive for me, that school. So I transferred to the University of Minnesota. But my mother did as well, to the Duluth campus. And so, you know, those last years of her life, like I said, she died when we were both seniors in college. She died over our spring break of our senior year. Um, but those last years of her life uh, were really years for her, for both of us, that the, the doors were opening. And um, we were about to step into a new a new place in our lives, and of course, I got to, to make that step, and my mother didn't. Hmm. Uh, but I've really deeply carried her with me uh, all of these years, as anyone who's read my work knows. So you're 26 years old, and your mom has died. You're dealing with grief. Uh, your family has disintegrated. Uh, uh, you get this idea: so you're gonna you're gonna hike yeah. a, a major portion of the Pacific Crest uh, Trail. Where where did that idea come from? Well, that's right. So by the time I decided to hike the Pacific Crest Trail, about four years had passed since my mom died. And, and you know, everything had fallen apart. And here again, I thought I was alone in this. Um, I think we think of something like a tragedy of, of a mother dying, a child dying, a family member dying. And we think that the family will uh, gather around each other um, and become stronger. And, and that certainly happens in some cases. But in a lot of cases, the stress of that loss, I think especially the loss of a mother, who so much uh, does tend to be the, the, the person around which the family revolves, and that was absolutely the case with my mom, uh, things fell apart. Um, my, I don't have a relationship with my biological father, but I, at the time my stepfather was, was really a father to me and my siblings, and um, he couldn't really continue doing that. My siblings all had struggles, and we, we didn't really have a family anymore. Um, and... I was lost, and I lost my way. And I, I knew the deepest part of me knew uh, that, I, that I couldn't stay lost, that I had to do something to save myself. And the reason for that is just really plainly, my mother had loved me too well for me to ruin my life. And I had that, that moment of truth um, when I was about 26. And and I came upon this guidebook that was uh, in an REI in Minneapolis where I was living at the time. And uh, it, it was called the Pacific Crest Trail, Volume 1, California. And it described this national scenic trail that I'd never heard of. And, it, you know, it was a trail that went from the Mexican border up to the, into the Canadian, you know, into Canada, uh, through California, Oregon, and Washington. And I just had this feeling that I could find some solace by walking that trail uh, for a while. And I didn't have enough money to fund the entire journey, which would take about five or six months. But I knew I could, you know, scrape together enough money. I was a waitress at the time to to go for about three months. And so that's what I did. And um, I I really had never gone backpacking before. I'd I'd gone hiking a lot. I loved day hiking. And, of course, I'd grown up in a very primitive way in the woods. And so I knew I wasn't afraid of the wilderness. I knew that that was the place I felt the, the most whole. And I set out on that trip. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, you, 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 I mean, you did some preparation, right? But in, in other ways, you, you just went, right? So, for example, you, had, you say you'd never backpacked ever before. Now you're going to do three, <laughs> right. three months. And, and, your, right. and your That's pack, right. was, your pack was way too heavy. Way too heavy. <laughs> Yeah, I, I will admit that I haven't always um, <laughs> been always the most reasonable when it comes to these things. But I will say in my defense, it's funny because, of course, I made, um, you know, I, I made a lot of fun of this, of myself uh, in Wild 
because it is funny to look back. I, I think we all, anyone who's passed through their 20s can, can look back on that, that decade sometimes and think, well, what was I thinking then? But of course, I, I'm kind of glad that I had that, that youthful optimism because if I had been too careful, I wouldn't have gone at all. And here's the thing about preparing is, first of all, I want to say it was 1995. It, it was a very different age. It wasn't the time when we were all able to go on the Internet and quickly find out whatever on this green earth we wanted to know. Uh, it was, there was no, like, reading somebody else's trail journal or, you know, any of these things now that we could all have at our fingertips in a matter of seconds. There was really just a few, you know, I basically had my guidebook, and, and, I, and I studied it, you know, and I prepared all my dehydrated food, and I packed all my boxes you know, when I hear that I wasn't prepared, it's like in some, so many ways, that's all I did for months before my hike is prepare. But you're, you're right that I didn't, uh, I, I really conflated hiking uh, with backpacking. Yeah. I, I really thought of them as the same thing. And I was forgetting that, of course, with backpacking, you, you really are carrying everything you need on your back. And um, in my case, that ad- added up to a lot of weight. And anyone who has read the book um, Wild or has seen the movie, which starred Reese Witherspoon, you know that there's that, that comic scene where I'm basically, you know, I can't lift my pack. There's no other way to put it. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I, I love actually, you know, a lot of people have asked me, if you could go back in time, would you, you know, have carried fewer things? And, and in some ways, the answer is, of course, yes, that, you know, that would have made more sense. But in another way, I feel so glad, actually, that I had that experience because you never forget a lesson you learn the hard way, right? And I was the one who had to pay for the, the, the consequences of bringing too much stuff. And I did, and I learned something from it. Yeah, the, the pack is a metaphor, right? Um, so you, part of the things, you, one of the things, you know, the comical level was a, a saw, I guess you, you figure. And, and I could relate to that. I'm not an outdoorsman, but I, I could think, well, maybe you'll need a saw. Uh, you also took books, I think, right? Yes. What, the what, most important thing. But, but that's it, is that, you're right, the saw, like, it, in some ways, it's, you know, backpackers would go, well, why would you need that? But, of course, anyone who goes into the woods would think, well, maybe she needs that, right? Yeah, of course. I, I, I thought, well, you know, why are people making fun of her for that? Because, I, you know, maybe I'd take a saw if I were out there as well. Um, and then find out that maybe I didn't need it. What, by the way, what were you reading out there? Oh, yeah. Okay, so those books. Yeah, now that is something that... You know, and this is what a piece of advice I often give to backpackers. People will say, well, you know, what should I take or what shouldn't I take, you know, now, now that I'm the expert on this? Um, you know, I, I think that, of course, it's important to be mindful of weight and to be careful about what you take out there and don't take too many things because you will suffer physically if you do. But I also, also think it's important to take the things that feed you intellectually and spiritually and emotionally. And in my case, it was really books. I, I had always a book with me um, at every place along the way. I, I had put into each redelivery, resupply box a, a book. And, you know, the books were my greatest companions out there because I often went long periods of time without seeing another human. The first eight days of my hike, I did not see another person. And, and often would go, you know, one or two or three whole days without seeing another person. And so I, I, and I've always loved books, so that's not new. But but certainly books took on heightened meaning for me on the Pacific Crest Trail. I, I read um, some of my books that remain some of my favorites today, um, The Complete Stories of Flannery O'Connor, James Joyce's Dubliners, Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. Those books um, were really powerfully uh, informative to me and, and consoling to me, and they were my company out on the Pacific Crest Trail. You call, use the phrase radical aloneness. You say, you know, eight, eight days straight and then one or two days at a time, you'd be totally alone. You know, you got animals and you got, but, but with, without another human being around. Yeah, well, and it is, it's a kind of radical aloneness, too, that I think, sadly, we've all but lost, in, at least in the United States. And it's, that's because of our, you know, the Internet. I mean, I think about now when I go hiking, you know, do I have a cell phone in my back pocket? Uh, I usually do. And, I mean, I've tweeted from the Pacific Crest Trail, <laughs> which is just <laughs> laughable to me now. Because back in 95, of course, uh, you could have a kind of aloneness that, that I think you have to go out of your way to have now. Um, I, when I was out there, I, I was honestly alone. So if, if something happened to me and I needed to, to help from other people or to find other people... 
um, many times that would mean, you know, hiking for hours and hours and sometimes days before I could reach a road or a, um, a payphone or a business or, or, or find another person. And I think that that's a, a really useful experience to really actually sometimes leave that cell phone at home. I'm not a Luddite. I love technology. I love the ways the Internet connects us. I love that you and I can be talking. I'm in my office in Portland, Oregon, and you're in Utah. You know, but, but I also think to return to that kind of more original state of being with yourself on occasion, truly with yourself, and not you know, peering through that portal that the Internet offers us um, in, in connecting us to others. I think that there's something that we need about um, that solitude feeds our soul. You say that uh, one of the healthy things about being out there alone was that you couldn't paper over or numb things, and that resonated with me. I think we do sometimes. Things we don't want to deal with, we do paper over or numb in our regular lives. That's, that's right. And, you know, I mean, we have so many distractions, and we have consolation, we have company, we have friends, we have alcohol, we have whatever we turn to um, when, when we want to occupy ourselves. And, and let me tell you, you know, the tedium of, just walking every day, all day, day after day after day. I mean, like, I love hiking, but it, it does, it, it frankly gets boring. You know, it's a tedious endeavor. You every day have a job to walk from point A to point B, and there's a lot of uh, physical challenges along the way. Um, but, you know, what happens to your mind is uh, you, you begin to think about everything in your life. And some of those things are pleasant and fun to think about, and some of those things are difficult. And I, I did find that um, I, I gained you know, really deep insight on that journey. Um, and that, that that's what that journey was obviously about for me, of course. You said earlier my backpack was a metaphor. And what's, what was interesting to me in writing about the hike is, of course, it was also not a metaphor. I mean, it was actually like a really heavy pack, you know. <laughs> and it wasn't until I was writing about my hike that I saw that it was a metaphor, that that it was both the thing itself and um, that that the thing it meant more deeply. And I think that, that my whole hike was sort of like that, that, that you know, I, I did this thing of just walking along through the wilderness, and yet what I really gained was something, you know, a, a deep spiritual awakening, I would say. You say, and one of the things you're dealing with, of course, is, 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 is extreme grief. Uh, your, your mother's, uh, this is four years after your mother's passed, but of course you, you loved her so much. Uh, and you say, for the first time, I was in touch with my rage about her death. Of course, that's one of the anger mm-hmm. is one of the stages. And uh, you, I guess, you hadn't gone through that at that point. You you had to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. We're told, you know, what these stages of grief are, and I, what I've learned, and I think most of your listeners who have had experiences with deep grief know as well, is that. You know, it's not linear, and I and I think even you know Elizabeth Kubler Ross, who, who talked about those stages of grief, didn't even. I mean, I think that's been misinterpreted. That it's like you feel this way, and then you feel the next way, and then you feel the other way. It doesn't work like that. I mean, my mom's been dead 26 years, and I still could cry over that. I still feel sorrow over that. Sometimes I still feel angry over that. And when I was on the Pacific Crest Trail, um, that time you're talking about, where I really got in touch with feeling mad, not just mad at the world, but kind of mad at my mom. Like, why did you die? And I'd never allowed that that emotion before. And it was, you know, because I loved her so much, because I knew she had been such a good mom, it felt disloyal to have any kind of, to allow any kind of anger uh, towards her to emerge. And also, you know, it, I think that so many of us, in, when we're in our 20s, we, we go through that reckoning with our parents. But even if they were great parents, there are things that we think, well, why, did, why didn't you do better in this category or that? Or why did you say this that one time? And I had never allowed myself to process those feelings um, about my mom because it felt like a betrayal. And when I was on the Pacific Crest Trail, I just allowed myself to, to see my mom more fully for, for her perfections as well as her imperfections. Because, of course, she was an extraordinary, wonderful, beautiful woman and she was also fully human. I want to talk briefly. You you met some other humans out there it, it, periodically. I, I I was surprised by how many. You know, you said you went eight days at first, and then every once in a while. But uh, I guess I would have guessed you you wouldn't have seen anyone. But I guess there are were at least were probably are people yeah. out there hiking that trail. Oh, there's far more people out there hiking that trail now. You know, I mean, there's just it's. The numbers are, are 
way higher now um, than they were before. But yeah, you eventually, I mean, you you eventually come upon uh, other people who are hiking long distances on the trail or hiking the whole trail. You also come upon people who are, you know, out there for a week or a couple weeks backpacking trip. And of course, at the places where um, the trail crosses a road or you, you know, you, a little town where you have your, your resupply. So those are all places where you meet people. And, you know, the thing is about meeting people on the trail when you haven't seen someone for eight days or two days or one day or whatever, you know, you, there's this instant sense of kinship. And I love that. I've talked to many other long distance hikers who talk about that sense of um, connection you have with people who are also hiking long distances. You feel like um, you have something in common, even if you come from totally different worlds. And I, and I love that part of the trail. And it's interesting that part of the trail, um, that aspect of the trail experience, reminds me a lot of my childhood in rural America because, you know, we lived on this dirt road, like I said, 20 miles from the nearest town of 400 people. And, you know, my little, the, the, the people who lived in a two or three mile radius of, of where I lived, you know, first of all, just a, a small handful of people. And it didn't matter if we agreed on politics or had the same religion or lived the same lifestyle. In fact, that, that little group had vastly different um, feelings and beliefs in, in all those regards. And yet you were always um, connected. If, if it snowed, you know, it would be my stepfather out there plowing everyone's driveway because he had a plow. Or if someone was sick, everyone brought a casserole. I loved that, um, that sense of kinship on the trail that I'd, that I'd only really experienced in rural America. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like maybe we need to pack the nation into that rural county, you know, these days. We need a, a sense of community, it seems <laughs> yeah. like, you know, uh, oh my goodness, to repair yes, that do. sense yeah. of community. Um, you say that um, there's, a, there's a moment, a kind of a climax uh, in the book. You, you've, you had an end in, in mind, right, physical end, this, this bridge. And you felt like that also... You know, something emotional was happening by the time you you got to the end of that and crossed that bridge, which I think is in Oregon or Washington. Yeah, it separates Oregon. It it connects Oregon and Washington, I should say. Um, It spans the Columbia River, and um, you know, the Columbia River is the border between those two states. And And it's this beautiful bridge. It's it's in the town of Cascade Locks, Oregon, and across in Washington, it's Stevenson, Washington. And you know, it's funny because, of course, if I were writing fiction. Uh, you know, I would never be allowed to have this woman's destination point be called the Bridge of the Gods. It's just, <laughs> you know, the, 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 it's just too much. The metaphor is too much, right? And yet, in real life, that's what it is called. And it, it, it was, you know, it is a sacred place to me. Uh, I, I reached that bridge, and one of the things I wrote in Wild is just, you know, how much I felt gra- a sense of gratitude. And not just a sense of gratitude for, of course, having reached the end of my hike and be happy that now I can go sleep in beds and listen to music and eat whatever I want. But also uh, gratitude for, for everything that brought me there, even the difficult things, gratitude for all of the experiences I've had in my life, both good and bad. Um, it was a really wonderful uh, kind of reset, if you will. It wasn't like I became a different person. I think sometimes um, this narrative you know, is misunderstood in that like, I was this like, monstrous person who was so messed up and didn't know what I was doing, and then I went hiking and I found myself. And, and that wasn't the case. I was, uh, I was somebody who was really struggling uh, and, and, like I said earlier, lost in my life, but I still knew who I was, and I just needed to find her again. And uh, that hike allowed me to do that. You say, everything that I am today is born of everything that I gathered back on that trip. That's an interesting uh, phrase, gathered back. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. I gathered it back to myself. I think a lot of a, a lot of people, when they're in a hard time, it, it isn't that they don't um, still have that, that inner sense of their own strength or their, their moral compass or, um, you know, in my, you know, like, the ambitions and, or intentions that they once had when they were a kid and dreaming about what they would be when they grew up. I think it's just that they lose track of it. They listen to other voices sometimes, people who telling them that they're not worth for that anymore, that they don't deserve that anymore. And, you know, so it wasn't, you know, I, I really did sort of gather back again that little girl who had been loved so well by her mother in spite of everything, who, who you know, found her way to college against all odds and, 
um, aspired to be a writer, you know, and I, I, I re- it was like I remembered all of those things again, and I believed them all again. And for a short time in my life, in those years after my mom died, I, I had lost them, and, and par- partially I'd lost them because I thought by losing them I was honoring my mom. I was showing the world, see, she matters so much that I'm going to ruin my life uh, as proof of how great she was. And, you know, I realized I, I, that was the wrong thing to do. I realized that the, the best way I could honor my mom would actually be to become the woman she raised me to be. And I think that's the best thing any of us can do for the people who loved us and who gave us uh, their kindness uh, and, and compassion and, and love and faith along the way. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our last segment with Cheryl Strayed. Uh, she's author of Wild, of course, a New York Times bestseller. Also, Tiny Beautiful Things, Brave Enough, the novel Torch. And uh, Cheryl Strait is coming to Logan. Uh, the Tanner Talks from USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences and the USU English Department are presenting an evening with Cheryl Strait. That's at the Performance Hall on the Utah State University campus, Thursday, April 6th. The event is free and open to the public, but tickets are required, and tickets are made available beginning today at 11. So uh, we can get right on the computer at 11 uh, to get those uh, tickets. And uh, we will uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about Dear Sugar. Uh, when we come back, and um, your publisher, apparently Cheryl Strade, noticed that uh, a lot of your uh, your your phrases, your sayings, you could say, were were making their way into the world as memes, and so they they put out in the world brave enough, which is a, a collection of, uh, of some of these quotations. We'll talk about that as well. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Dr. Scott Dixon with Intermountain Healthcare Clinics, practicing allergy and immunology at the Budge Clinic. 1340 North, 500 East in Logan. Information at 435-716-1820. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cash Arts presenting Cirque La Puttakea, Slapstick Sonata, Visual Poetry Meets Physical Comedy, a contemporary circus set to the music of Mozart, Handel, and others. Saturday, March 18th at 7.30 p.m. Details at cashearts.org. Choices can give us freedom. It used to be the case that when you went to the supermarket, there was one kind of pasta sauce. And choices can paralyze us. At one point, I think I went into a grocery store and discovered 36 different varieties. And that's just the small stuff. And most of life is not prepackaged. I'm Guy Raz. Decisions, 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 and how we make them. Next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Cheryl Strayed. Uh, she is uh, the author of the number one uh, New York Times bestselling memoir, Wild. Also the New York Times bestsellers, Tiny Beautiful Things and Brave Enough and the novel Torch. And um, her um, essays have been published in the best American essays, New York Times, Vogue, Salon, The Sun, Tin House and other places. Uh, she is co-host, along with Steve Almond, of uh, Dear Sugar Radio, which originated for, with her uh, popular Dear Sugar Advice column on the Rumpus. And uh, she is coming to Utah. The Tanner Talks from USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences and USU English Department are presenting an evening with Cheryl Strait. That's at the Performance Hall on the USU campus, Thursday, April 6th. The event is free and open to the public, but tickets are required, and tickets are available beginning at 11 a.m. today. Uh, so, uh, uh, Cheryl Strait, I, I want to talk a little bit about the movie. What What did you think of the movie? Experience. I was really involved in the making of the film, and it was uh, something that, uh, from the, the ground, from the very beginning, it was me and Reese Witherspoon. She read Wild before it was published, and we pretty quickly got on the phone after that, and she talked to me about why she was moved by the story and why she felt like, she was the person <clears throat> to bring it to the screen. Uh, so um, <laughs> Reese Witherspoon plays you. Laura Dern plays your your mother. Yes, yes. And my my daughter also plays me. So th- when Reese is having these memories of her childhood, uh, you see the young young version of Cheryl, and that's my daughter Bobby. That's your daughter, okay. That's my mom, Bobby. Oh, yeah. oh wonderful. Yeah, uh, it, so it was a really a family affair. And, you know, I, I felt good about the movie. I think that, of course, there's always more in the book. You know, they couldn't put everything into the film. But I was proud of the film. I felt like it honored the book. A screenplay by Nick Hornby. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Nick is, I mean, he's really one of my favorite writers and has been for a long time. So it was a huge honor that he did the adaptation. 
Did you ever consider writing the screenplay? You know, some authors do uh, do the screenplay. Right, yeah. You know, uh, Bruna Papandrea and Reese Witherspoon were the producers. They're the ones who optioned my book for film. And they just don't really believe that, like, the, that the author of the book is the best adapter. Um, and I don't know that I agree with them. But, uh, you know, it wasn't, the opportunity wasn't presented to me. And it was probably just as well because I was so busy uh, during that time anyway. And they needed, they wanted to have it, have it really fast. And I was so busy promoting Wild. And I had this other book, Tiny Beautiful Things, came out four months after Wild. And I was really in a whirlwind of my own. And so it was just as well that somebody as extraordinary as Nick Hornby did the adaptation. Yeah, it's it's a different pair of eyes, right? A different heart, if, if you will, of coming to your material. Do, do you think you did a good job? I do. I do. And I certainly, like I said, I was involved in every aspect. So I was invited to read early drafts and weigh in, and I did. And I, I talked a lot to the director, Jean-Marc Vallée, as well. Uh, you know, making the making of a film is a collaborative process, and a lot of people's voices are, are in any given film. And and so, yeah, they every everyone all along the way uh, involved me. Jean-Marc Vallée would send me cut by cut of the film, and then we would Skype and talk about, you know, what did I think of this and what did I think of that? And, you know, I, I really knew that um, I needed to both, uh, you know, I needed to pick my battles. Like, if I felt strongly about something, I certainly told them. And, and in other cases, I, I didn't want to tell them how to make the movie. You know, I wanted to, to allow uh, all of these different artists to have their vision, too. My book is unchanged, um, and I always was clear about that going in, that my book is, is mine, and the movie is, you know, theirs. Hmm. I want to talk about uh, Dear Sugar. Um, this this really took off, and it was so you wrote it uh, for most of its run, I guess, um, uh, under that pseudonym, Dear Sugar, and then it was revealed that it's 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 you. What what did you want to accomplish with this? Is advice right? This is advice column basically, right? Yeah, and, and unorthodox advice. I mean, essentially, I was just asked by this website, The Rumpus, back in in twenty ten uh, to to write this column under this, you know, assumed identity of sugar. And I'd never written an advice column before. I didn't really know what, what, what that would mean. Um, it was paid, the job pays literally nothing, um, which, which, you know, is, is common and sad for writers, but it was true. And I just thought it sounded like fun. It sounded interesting. And what happened is, of course, I went really deep with it and it became one of the most, extraordinary experiences I've had as a writer, one of the most important experiences I've had as a writer, because I decided to just forget the constraints of the traditional advice column and really uh, take it to write to write my best writing in, in this sort of format and to go really deep um, in grappling with people's, the questions that people had presented to me, telling stories about my own life, telling stories about friends, um, and really using the power of storytelling um, to to try to heal our hearts. And, you know, I, I did that because so many books have been healing to me. And, you know, I believe that we are consoled by literature. And so I just decided to make the Dear Sugar column um, like that. And it, it grew this cult following online. I always knew I would reveal my identity. So to me, the anonymity was never the thing that allowed it to work. It was just something I was doing for a bit. And I revealed my identity uh, right before Wild was published. In, uh, I, I revealed my identity in February of 2012. And a few months later, my book, Tiny Beautiful Things, came out. Um, and, and then the Dear Sugar column has had its own life via the book because, it, you know, lots of people who buy the book never read it on the rumpus. It's, it's like a whole new thing for them. And, you know, that's the book that most often people come to me and say, this book saved my life. You know, they read Wild and then they sort of pick up this strange Dear Sugar column thing. You know, they're like, what's this advice? And they, and they find that it's actually... Um, you know, a book that means a lot to them. So it's kind of like the sneaker. It's it, you know, Wild gets all the glory, but a lot of people hold tiny, beautiful things dear, and I'm grateful for that. You you say um, in this video t- talking about dear sugar that you were engaging. You wanted to engage in radical sincerity. That struck a chord with me because I think we do live in a very cynical age. You wanted to kind of push back against the you know where a lot of people are just trying to be really hip and uh, and uh, edgy and uh, and cynical. You're trying to engage in yeah. radical sincerity here. Yeah, you know, I mean, I enjoy snark as much as anyone. I mean, it's funny, whatever. But I also find kind of that it's kind of leaves me cold and feeling hollow. And and you know, for better or worse, uh, 
the thing I've always been good at as both a person and a writer it is being like the kind of uh, corny, sincere one who wants to talk about feelings and, and who wants to um, explore those things in a kind of open-hearted way. Um, and, and, you know, sugar was the, the sort of perfect conduit, you know, for not something that, like, I was trying to be, but just someone I was. And for a long time, like, when I was in my 20s writing, like, I, I sort of wanted to hide that and wanted to be a kind of funnier, hippier, uh, not hippier, but hipper kind of writer. Um, because a lot of, you know, I, it's not that I don't like that kind of writing, too. It's just that I, what I have to offer is a kind of emotional sincerity. And I, and I think that that's what happened with Dear Sugar. And, and now, you know, Steve Allman and I, as you mentioned, we have Dear Sugar Radio, which is a podcast. And, you know, I don't have time to write the column anymore. And also because I, I sort of found what I wanted to find as a writer via the column. And then, you know, I want to move on and write other things. And so we have this podcast. And that's really fun, too, where we have these, you know, really, we have fun, but we also, you know, take it very seriously, giving people advice. Um, people write to us with all kinds of problems, and we, and we discuss. Just have about a minute left. I wanted to uh, quote this. You, you say, a phrase I hear a lot is, we have so much in common. And you go on to say, perhaps the greatest gift of the past few years has been my deepening awareness of how much there is that connects us all across age, culture, gender, and other categories that tend to separate us. That's, that's a very hopeful viewpoint. You, you, you still subscribe to that? I believe it, and that's why I believe, you know, books and art in general, but literature in particular, are really important right now, right? When we read the story about a particular person, we almost always feel compassion for them, even if they have lives very different from our own. And I think that we, you know, sometimes there's all this news, these headlines, we talk about people in categories, and we feel um, sometimes really negative things about people as categories, but it's really hard to hate a human when you know their story. And, you know, I, I really have found that over and over again, both as a reader and a writer, the story brings us together. And so I'm, that's, I'm doing, that's what I'm doing um, uh, to, to heal these divides in our world and our nation. That's my contribution. We've been talking with Cheryl Strade. She's author of Wild and uh, Tiny Beautiful Things, Brave Enough, the novel Torch. She's coming to Utah. Tanner Talks from USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences and USU English Department are presenting an evening with Cheryl Strade. That's at the Performance Hall on the USU campus t- uh, Thursday, April 6th at uh, 7 p.m. The event is free and open to the public, but tickets are required, and tickets will be made available beginning at 11 a.m. today. Uh, Cheryl Strade, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been really wonderful talking to you, Tom. Take care. Take care. Thank you uh, for joining us. Um, We hope you'll uh, join us tomorrow. We'll be talking with Kenneth Woodward, longtime religion uh, writer for Newsweek. He's out with a book calling Getting Religion, Faith, Culture, and Politics from the Age of Eisenhower to the Era of Obama. And uh, he's going to talk about the intersection of politics, culture, and religion. That's tomorrow. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening today. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.